The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we all know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even, I have, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word to us. Well, good evening, everybody. I love how we spread out and make sure we get our space. It's like a matinee at the five. <clears throat> hey, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so happy to be with you guys. I made a huge mistake as we sang. I love to sing. I'm not any good at it at all, and I don't know how to do it. And when I sing hard, I obliterate my voice. And I pretended tonight, I guess subconsciously, that I was on tour with Shelby Bird, just singing, going hard at it. And I have <laughs> blown up my voice. I don't know how much I'll have. So Shelby, I'm thankful for you. Um, right? I am thankful for you. And uh, if my voice goes dead tonight, I'll be thankful for you for that also. Hey, um, before we pray and dive into this monumental text, I just want to name how fun it's been to celebrate Mother's Day here today. And I realize like Mother's Day in different places can be awkward. Some people press it to these absurd boundaries of sentimentality and other people try to pull back and act like these dour realities need to be named in Mother's Day. I just love how Frontline honors people. I love how Frontline celebrates. I love how we can name the importance of mothering in our body, both like moms who are parenting children and spiritual mothering and I love that the resurrection of Jesus Christ frees us to name what is scary and sad and broken even in the midst of celebration. Because prior to the new heavens and the new earth, we'll never celebrate anything. We'll never celebrate anything without some kind of tinge of sadness, brokenness, unfinishedness about it. The unique thing about Mother's Day is it brings all of us together, even if we're not women or even if we're not biological mothers, because all of us have a mom. And Mother's Day for some people is the remembrance of how long your mom's been gone 
or um, how great a relationship you had with your mother, but you don't have the same kind of relationship with your daughter. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we have to navigate on Mother's Day. And the resurrection of Jesus tells us that there is a day coming when everything that's broken will be put back together, where everything that is tattered will be reweaved and restored. So we can actually celebrate Mother's Day with confidence and joy, even where things are tainted or stained with brokenness. I think that's significant. I just want to lay that in the room. And I want to pray for us. We've got, we got a lot to do tonight. Um, so I promise if you'll stay with me, I'll have you out of here by 9 p.m. Um, so let's pray and we'll get after it together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've gifted a body, different gifts, different passions, different burdens, one Lord, Paul tells us in chapter 12. Different manifestations of your spirit, one God. And I ask that you would draw us together under that oneness right now. And with all the joy, all the maybe chaos for some people, all the um, disjointedness of Mother's Day in the midst of us, could we stand under your word and hear this potent word that's not just about an idea that we call love or some kind of disposition of the human soul. It's actually about a way of being, God, that's connected to who you are that reflects who you are. So my, my prayer, my humble prayer tonight, God, is that as we hear Paul describe love, we wouldn't abstract that concept, but we would realize Paul is telling us something about you and what you offer us in the person and work of Jesus. So speak to us now. I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Man, 1 Corinthians 13 is the Apostle Paul at his finest. It is dense, potent, powerful poetry, and it's probably the most well-known passage in the Bible. In fact, I have encountered people that know this passage and love this passage and weren't even aware that it was from the Scripture. People just hear this word and they think, oh, this is the great homily of love. It, it's Everywhere, And in fact, Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Corinthians, says there's something bad, kind of, about it being everywhere for us. Listen to what he says. He says, the love affair with this love chapter has also allowed it to be read regularly apart from its context, which does not make it less true, but causes one to miss too much. I love the fact that Gordon Fee isn't trying to throw shame or shade on anybody. He's basically saying, quote this passage of scripture at your sorority chapter meetings. Quote this at your strange, subversive coffee gatherings with friends. There's, quoting it out of context doesn't cause it to be any less true. But he's actually saying, if we draw it into the context of where Paul wrote it, it will have more power and more potential for us. And that's what I want to do tonight. Because the temptation would be on Mother's Day, which, by the way, I've never drawn a better passage of Scripture to preach on Mother's Day than this one. This is a lucky draw, and I've drawn some really, really sketchy and odd passages to preach on Mother's Day. I felt like I won the lottery when I got this one, but the temptation would be to abstract this from the context of Corinthians and just preach a sermon about motherly love. Which, by the way, motherly love is incredibly 
powerful. The, the image of motherly love is incredible, incredibly powerful. Jesus uses the image of motherly love to describe his own love in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Paul uses the imagery of motherly love to describe his ministry in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. But here in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul isn't talking about motherly love, regardless of how glorious and powerful it is. And he's not talking about love in the abstract. He's talking about love as a divine ideal that shapes how Christians interact with one another in their week-in, week-out interaction as the people of God. Paul is laying before the Corinthians divine love as an ideal to say, This is who God is, and this is how you should operate in line with who God is as you navigate your relationships among one another. And if you understand what was happening with the Corinthians, they were living a life that was far, far distant from the ideal that Paul describes here. But what he's naming for them and for us is a way of being. Look at the end of chapter 12, and let's just note this. Paul says in chapter 12, Verse 31, excuse me, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Remember, we're in this context talking about spiritual or miraculous or the revelatory gifts, tongues, prophecy, healing, miracles, discernment, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. And Paul says, desire those gifts and I'll show you a more excellent way. Now, Pastor Chad's going to pick us up in a couple of weeks and, and talk about verses 8 to 13 of 1 Corinthians 13 and explain to us how Paul isn't presenting love as an alternative to the miraculous gifts. Because Chad's going to address the question, do tongues and prophecy cease with the death of the apostles? But, but I'm going to answer part of Chad's question now and say, Paul isn't presenting love as an alternative to tongues and prophecy. He's not saying, well, you could pursue tongues and prophecy or you could pursue love. And by the way, love is better. Paul says, no, pursue tongues and prophecy. And let me tell you how to do that. Let me tell you the way in which God desires his people to pursue his gifts. Because love, brothers and sisters, is just pursuing the heart of God according to the ways of God. Paul just says, hey, I want you to walk in these ways. And love isn't just the answer for how you pursue the presence and the power of the Spirit. Love is the answer for how you live every aspect of the Christian life. And in fact, the way you address every challenge that Paul has addressed to the Corinthians and us up to this point. How do you live the Christian life? And the answer is, Paul says, I'll show you a more excellent way. And to tell us how to live the Christian life, Paul lays out for us an ideal. And I want to keep saying the word ideal because Paul is laying out for us this glorious ideal of love that flows straight from the character of God himself. And I say ideal because it's something that you or I will never attain this side of heaven. Love, as Paul describes it, is something we're never going to walk in consistently or perfectly as the people of God before Jesus returns. 
I mean, love will describe the full texture of relationships in heaven when the fullness and finality of the resurrection of Jesus is consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. But now, it's an ideal that Paul lays out that we're to aspire to, that we're to, by grace and by the power of the Spirit, conform our lives to. But it's something we're never going to walk in consistently. And and I want us to name that because even though we're not going to get to the Verse 11 tonight, Paul puts this discussion of love in the context of maturity and growing up. This isn't just something that we're to aspire to. It's something that we're to grow in. I mean, what I want us to do as a church is I want us to understand this glorious ideal of love that Paul lays out for us. And I don't just want us to understand it conceptually or abstractly, I want us to encounter the love of God in the person of Jesus. And I want us to take steps as a people to grow in it. So here's how I want us to walk through the passage tonight to that end. I want us to to, to name three or see three things in this passage. First of all, I want us to look at verses four to six and hear Paul define for us what love is. So we'll answer the question, what love is? Then secondly, we'll look at verse seven and answer what love does. And then we'll come back to the beginning of the chapter, verses one to three, and I want us to close by talking together about the logic of lovelessness. So what love is? what love does, and the logic of lovelessness. Jump to verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with me if you've got your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got them in all these windows down here. You can grab one, and we'd love to give it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. And what Paul does in verses 4 to 6 is he gives us a list of identifiers describing for us what love is. Now, this list is not comprehensive and it's not exhaustive. But what's amazing to realize is it is pastoral for Paul and strategic. And what I mean is he's looked at the problems that the Corinthians have struggled with and he's pointing to the nature of God for them. And he's saying, hey, in light of these problems that you struggle with, can I tell you who God is and how God operates and urge you by his spirit to walk in the ways that he walks? It's unreal. So let's just walk through them. We'll skim the trees at best, but I just want to comment on each of these briefly as we walk through his list. Paul says, love is patient. Patience waits for God to accomplish his purposes instead of deciding that our purposes are supreme and they deserve to be accomplished now. Patience isn't passive. It actually requires an aggressiveness of your soul to trust God and say, I will confidently stand and let your agenda be supreme and I will serve your agenda and I will wait on your agenda instead of privileging mine in front of yours. Paul says love is patient. And patience isn't the acceptance of evil, by the way. Patience can bear with evil even when naming it to be evil and rejecting it. Love is kind. Listen to this quote from Lewis Smedes from his book Love Within Limits, which is a book written about 1 Corinthians 13 that I would commend to many of you. I'll I'll quote it a couple of times tonight. Love is patient, love is kind. And Smead says, 
Kindness is love's readiness to enhance the life of another person, but it's more. It's the power to move close to another person in order to heal. Smeeds orients kindness in terms of the disposition of drawing near to heal someone. To actually say, hey, this is broken, this needs mending. Love will manifest itself in in my life in drawing near to this person, not for my comfort or for my benefit, but for theirs. And there's a difference between kindness and niceness. I think it's important for us to name because I think there's some strange temptation we bear as Christians to be nice. But Paul doesn't say love is nice. Niceness conceals love in service of self-protection and comfort. Niceness wants to be viewed as kind, but actually avoids doing the hard work of love to reap the benefit of kindness for its own self-preservation. I, I can't help, this is probably due to my age and it's, it's expiring every day, I can't help but view almost the entirety of the world through the lens of Seinfeld. It's, it's the way I see things. There's one or two people in our church that are still with me and can go there. There's a Seinfeld episode called The Scoff Law in which Newman is finally getting his comeuppance for avoiding traffic tickets his entire life. But there's a side story in the scoff law where Jerry and George have a friend, Gary Fogle. And it it gets exposed in the narrative that Gary Fogle has been lying to Jerry, telling Jerry he has cancer so that Jerry will pay for Gary Fogle's hair treatments at the hair club for men. And he will ultimately pay for his toupee under the presumption that Gary Fogle's hair has fallen out because of chemotherapy. Now, here's where the story like meets our point tonight. George discovers that Gary Fogle never had cancer, but he's kept telling Jerry that he had it so that Jerry would pay for his toupee. And George tells Jerry the news, and Jerry says, well, that's it. I'm going to stick it to him. He's going to deal with it now. And George stops Jerry, and he says, no, you be nice. You be nice to him. But George has motives there because Gary Fogle was going to give George a parking spot. So for George, this wasn't about Jerry being kind to Gary Fogle. This was about Jerry masking something so George could get something. See, love is not nice. Love doesn't feign a particular disposition to manipulate and get something for itself. Paul says love is kind. And kindness is not always gentle. The kindness of a surgeon has to cut with a scalpel. The kindness of a parent has to discipline a child. The kindness of a friend sometimes has to move towards someone else to name or to challenge or to correct addiction or misbehavior. Paul says love is kind. He also says love doesn't envy. Envy is the pain we feel inside of us when we see someone else having something that we want but don't have. And envy justifies our own moving towards people in meanness, trying to hurt them in some sort of subconscious, bizarre way to make them feel the pain that we feel for not having what they have. 
When we look at someone else and see that they have success or comfort or wealth or approval of others, and we get this burning inside of us that wants to move towards them, hurt them, Paul says, that's envy. Love doesn't work that way. Because love delights in the welfare of another and doesn't need to compete with them or punish them for not having what they have. Likewise, Paul says, love doesn't boast. Boasting is our own marketing department. Boasting is what we do when we're trying to remind other people about how we're just as good or great as them or maybe even greater. Boasting isn't necessarily a lie, but it's always unloving. Because instead of delighting in the greatness of another person, it tips the spotlight back towards us and says, well, that's, that's, that's good, but that's really nothing compared to this. Paul says, love doesn't compete like that. It delights in someone else being in the spotlight without need to shine the spotlight back on itself. Love isn't arrogant or rude. Now, this has everything to do with what the Corinthians were dealing with in terms of stretching people out and sorting the congregation in terms of wealth and pecking order socially. We've seen this already in Paul's letter where he's saying, hey, you guys are evaluating people based on what you think they offer you. And in this transactional system, you're treating people that you think are higher in the social order better than you and lower in the social order worse than you. That's what arrogance and rudeness does. Arrogance looks at people and says, well, they have nothing to offer me, so I'll kick down. And these people have something to offer me, so I'll kiss up. Paul says, love isn't like that way. Love doesn't view relationships transactionally. transactionally. It views relationships so that I can share and celebrate what God has given both of us together, even in its diversity. And rudeness is what I do to people that I think are beneath me. Paul says love doesn't do that because love doesn't rank people in the first place. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It's simply saying, hey, love is willing to sacrifice my rights for the rights of another. Love is willing to say, hey, no, it's okay. I don't have to get my way here. Love isn't irritable. The irritability is directly connected to getting our way. Did you know that? You know when you get irritated? When you get annoyed? When your way isn't being privileged or celebrated by all people. Now the Kali kids are in this room. Some of them aren't paying attention, so it's okay. I can talk about them right now. We talk often in the Kali home about being annoyed. Because I don't know if your house is anything like mine, but my kids are constantly annoyed. What he did was so annoying, and what she did was so annoying, and this was so annoying. And I try to coach to these things, which my kids call coachlets. They love them, by the way. They want more of them in their life. They're asking to be coached on a constant basis. But, but I coach about annoyance all the time, because annoyance and being annoyed says, my desires should be supreme. And if you don't meet my desires fully, I will punish you. That's what being irritable is. Now, it might be really small things. You're like, man, I desire that people's mouths stay closed when they chew gum. It's just my desire. I think it's God's desire too, but that, that's another sermon for another day. 
Like, I, I, it's my desire that people keep their mouths shut when they chew gum. But if, if I make that desire supreme and then demand that you conform to it and demand that you never um, partially fulfill my desire but always completely fill my desire, Paul says that is unloving. It's unloving. Love can say, hey, my desires aren't king. They don't have to be central. I'm not God. And the things I desire don't have to be fulfilled completely or now I trust God to fulfill all my desires. And there can we walk in love when I'm not demanding to be satisfied and letting you know when I'm not. Love can forego my satisfaction for the sake of the satisfaction of another. And how many places does lovelessness manifest itself in our lives in the realm of irritability? We're just irritated with people all the time. And some of us are more sophisticating it, sophisticated at hiding it, and others of us are just annoyed all the time. And when we're annoyed all the time, what, what happens is we start to resent people. Paul says love isn't irritable. Love isn't resentful. And resentment is the fruit that grows out of past irritation. Resentment is when I start treating you today based on how I felt about you over a previous course of irritating me. It's savoring of past offenses as fuel for or justification for withholding my friendship. What resentment is, is I tell myself a story about you from the past and I use that as justification now to be cold with you or withhold from you or fail to appreciate you for all that you are in the life of the body. Paul says, love doesn't work that way. Love covers over offenses. Love doesn't give itself over to irritability. irritability and therefore, love can interact with you in, in, in real time now, not based on past debts that you didn't know were being charged to you. Paul goes on to say, love doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Again, he's looking at the Corinthian struggles and then pointing at the nature and character of God and talking to them about how to live in light of it. If you have been with us in our time in Corinthians, or if you've ever read the book before, the Corinthians were so delighted in their freedom, and I put that in quotes like that, so delighted about their freedom that they were doing all kinds of aberrant stuff sexually and people were high-fiving these people in their aberrant relationships going, man, that guy is so free, he can have sex with his dad's wife. I mean, what amazing freedom he has. And Paul says, to do that is not to be loving because love doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Now, don't just think that's bullseye for the struggles that the Corinthians had. I think it's right in the heart of where we struggle as people now. What is it about us that thinks, well, I want to tell that person the truth, but, but I chose instead to be loving, as if truth and love stand on opposite sides of the aisle. 
Paul says, no, in order to be loving, you have to hold fast to the truth and stand with the truth and rejoice with it. I wonder where we need to grow in love and repent of lovelessness, believing that our own self-protection and niceness is loving. When Paul says, no, love is kind. It moves towards people for their healing. And love rejoices with the truth. Now, following this fire hose description of love, Paul isn't finished just by announcing what love is. He shifts in verse 7 to talk about what love does. And this sentence in a chapter that's full of these sentences that are so dense and mind-boggling, Paul makes four statements about what love does. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, love bears all things, love believes all things, Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. This is what love does. Love bears all things. And Paul doesn't just mean that it bears things in the sense of it endures things. He means bears in the sense of love has broad shoulders. Love can carry a lot. Love can endure a great amount. Love in the sense that it produces restraint. I don't have to tell you all that I'm carrying or bearing for you. Isn't that an amazing thing about love? Love can carry something and not even announce to the other person that is carrying it. I'm a left-handed person. Is there anyone else besides Chad Kinzer in here that's, look at Proud Lefties Unite. You can raise your left hand and celebrate with me. Glory, glory, there's lefties in the room. If you're lefty, you know that when you go out to eat, you got to get your position, right? I mean, you got to get your position or it's a bad night. You do not want to be in a booth next to a righty on the wrong side. It's probably a year into my marriage where I realized at a dinner that I've gotten positioned in a bad jam next to my wife who's a righty. But midway through dinner, I'm like, wait a minute. Why isn't this a problem? This should be a problem structurally. And my wife looks at me and said, about six months ago, I just learned to eat with my left hand. I was like, wow, that, that's the kind of love that bears things. She, she's actually enduring something, and she doesn't even feel the need to tell me about it. That's, that's what love does. It it enables us to overlook offenses, right? That's Proverbs 19.11. It's a glorious thing, the author of Proverbs says, to overlook an offense. Love enables us to cover a multitude of sins, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. It covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of sins, not all of them. There are some sins that love need not cover over. There are some sins that love need not bear. There are some sins that love needs to expose. And the way we discern that is like, if my rights are being violated, I believe that love can bear that. If someone else's rights are being violated, if someone else's good is being violated, I think love moves to expose. Now, whether we cover over or whether we expose, what's required to do that is wisdom. Love requires wisdom. Paul moves from what love bears to love believes all things. Love believes all things, Paul says. Now, belief functions on a spectrum 
where, where you have on one end a gullible person believes everything, and on the other end of the spectrum, a cynic believes nothing. A cynic is constantly seeing through everything and seeing every angle in everything because a cynic has vowed to themselves, I struggle as one. A cynic has vowed to themselves unlovingly, I will never be duped. But you know what Paul says? Paul puts love closer to the side of gullibility or at least on the opposite side of cynicism and says, love believes all things. Love believes the best. In in order to be loving and believe all things and to do what love does, we have to believe the best in at least two senses. we got to believe the best about people, and we got to believe the best about God. What do I mean? When I say we got to believe the best about people, love requires that when given an opportunity to tell ourselves a bad story about somebody, we tell ourselves a good story instead. We, we have gaps created in our experience all the time. Why did she do that? Why did he not show to that thing? Why did they say they would do this and they did the opposite? And in that place, we have a gap. And Paul says, in the place of the gap, love believes the best about the person and fills in the gap with something positive instead of something sinister which we all love to tell stories about other people being villains. Paul says, that's not loving. Loving doesn't tell, love doesn't tell villainous stories about other people. It believes the best about them. I had a guy say to me years ago, well, I believe the best about people until I experience the worst about them. And I said to him, I was like, hey, hey brother, that's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. You don't need to believe the best about people when you're experiencing the best about people. There's no inclination in your heart to tell a bad story. When you're experiencing the best, you're already believing the best because it's what you're experiencing. And for you to say you only believe the best until you experience the worst, not only does that put you in a ludicrous place in reality, but it pits you against love. Because Paul says, love believes all things. I will not make you the villain when I don't have the details. But it doesn't just require that I tell a good story about you. It requires that I tell a good story about God. Because in the place of lacking knowledge, lacking understanding, love says, I will trust that God knows things I don't know. God is accomplishing purposes I can't understand. And God is telling a story about that man or that woman that I don't presently know. God's telling an Abraham story about that person, and I'm trying to make them a villain. You know the Abraham story that God tells in chapter 4 of Romans. When Paul narrates Abraham's life, and in verse 20 he says, In all these things, Abraham never wavered in unbelief. I'm like... I, I don't know a lot about Abraham's story, but I know a few things. He pimped out his wife, and he had a kid with the, you know, his wife's servant. I think he did a lot of things according to unbelief. But Paul says the, the broad story God was telling about Abraham is in the, in the large arc of Abraham's life, the trajectory of his life was one of faith, not unbelief. 
That's the story God was telling about Abraham. And I want to conform the lens and the curvature of my eye to the loving disposition of a loving God who sees things that I don't see and who intends things that I don't intend. I wish I could preach a sermon about this one because I think lovelessness in the church here is killing us. I think when we refuse to believe the best about others and the best about God, we rend the body from itself. Paul says, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things. Even when the facts seem to show otherwise, even when it turns out that maybe the person is a villain, love hopes to the contrary. Love says, I I will hope that this relational brokenness isn't caused by what it seems to be caused by. Or I will hope that this relational brokenness won't stay in the position that it's presently in. See, hope and wishing are two completely different things. We use the words as if they're synonyms, but they're not. I, I wish that we would have done this yesterday, or I wish that we have pizza for dinner tonight. We use it like, I hope. I hope that we have pizza for dinner tonight, which I do. I really do hope that. But, but hope biblically is something different than desire. Hope says, I know that this is true ultimately, so I will stand here in confidence and live as if it is true now. What do I mean? I mean, when we deal with relational brokenness, we can say, I know that God will mend everything that's been torn asunder and heal everything that's sick and straighten everything that's crooked. I know that when it comes to the wedding feast of the Lamb, everyone will be there unified in harmony under the loving lordship of the resurrected and glorified Jesus. I know that to be true. So in this place of relational brokenness, I will hope for that day and walk as if it is real now. You hope for what you know is true. And I think about hope and healing. Like how do you hope and pray for cancer? Like how do you hope and pray for God to heal people you love? Look, I don't don't know if God's gonna heal people that I know that are ill, but what I do know confidently is there will come a day when all sickness and disease will be eradicated. So that hope can animate my love now and I can operate from that place of hope. Do you see what I'm saying? Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. This is Paul painting the circle where there's no way out if you want to have integrity. Because Paul says, hey, there will come experiences where you just have to deal with the fallout of evil. You just have to deal with brokenness and there's no way around it. Love doesn't eradicate horrific things from our lives. Love doesn't fly us away from the presence of evil. Here's Lewis Smedes again, which I just love. He says, love is not a magic power that turns bad things into good things. Love doesn't send us on a hallucinogenic trip that makes horrid things look beautiful. God's love is honest love. The evil we endure in the power of love is real evil. Love endures all things, which means love endures evil. 
There's evils that we endure in this world that are just the product of the fall. They're acts of nature. Tornadoes are atrocities we have to endure. There are other evils that are the real product of moral breaking in the universe, even if there's no moral agent responsible for them. Cancer is one of those. We endure the evils of tornadoes and of tumors because love enables us to do so. But we also endure the evils of sinful moral agents that have broken things and relationships. We endure that evil too. Some evils are about like physical violence, betrayal, slander, divorce. And Paul says, in the midst of that kind of tyranny and atrocity, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. Love endures. I've concluded that so much of the lack of resilience we see in our world is actually the evidence of lovelessness. The fragility that we see relationally everywhere is because people refuse to live according to the high ideals of divine love. And oh God, I long for you to make us a resilient people, which is rightly to say, God, would you make us a people characterized by love. People that are patient and kind not boastful, not arrogant, not irritable, not rude, not demanding their own way. People who bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. Those people are resilient people. Because love makes you strong. Love boosts you and buoys you. Now I want to close this way. I want to go back to verses one to three. Because What Paul starts with is this shocking logic of lovelessness. And and if we've seen this glorious portrait of love, it's right for us to remember that Paul begins with this jarring logic of lovelessness. He tells us what love is and he tells us what love does, but he tells us what we are without it. And if you look in verses 1 to 3, Paul makes these three large if-then statements. He says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, which is something the Corinthians were very zealous about. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I, I want us to be more zealous about that. But Paul says, If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but I don't have love, not only am I not delivering you angelic mysteries, I'm actually distracting the body. I, I, I'm like a gong or a cymbal. In verse 2, he says, if I have prophetic gifting, discernment, and ability to perform miracles, I mean, it's a pretty significant category, verse 2. He says, if I have this, but I have not love, I am nothing. And then in verse 3, he says, if I live according to the highest degree of sacrifice, if I give away everything I have, if I'm even willing to sacrifice my own life to be burned for the sake of another, but have not love, I am gain nothing. I think there's something about us that just reads those as stark and jolting and just walks on down the line. 
But Paul's actually laying out for us a biblical logic that is something we need to be really attentive to. It's the same kind of thing we see in Psalm 127. One, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. And God isn't telling you that unless God builds your house, you can't build it. In fact, the logic of Psalm 127 says you can build all kinds of things without God. You can build all kinds of things without God. It just has no significance eternally. And the same logic applies in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. Paul's not saying, hey, I don't think he's saying without love you can't do powerful ministry. That's what's so jarring to me about it. He's saying without love you can do powerful ministry, but it's nothing. And, and the whole point, the whole point of the gifts, Paul's told us, is the, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, verse 12. Everything about our life together as the people of God is for our good. He's going to talk about in chapter 14 about the reason why prophecy is to be prized above all the other gifts is prophecy builds up. Prophecy edifies. And now he's saying, if you do all this stuff but miss the intention of it, you gain nothing. You distract everybody. You are nothing. And the logic of lovelessness is terrifying. But again, remember, he's laying this down as an ideal. Because you know what I'm confident of? You and I will all walk in the lovelessness described in verses 1 to 3 of Corinthians. And you and I will all fail in the ideal of love Paul lays out in verses 4 to 6 and in verse 7. And the point isn't, the point isn't to give us a rubric that we now white-knuckled live according to and never fail. Paul's telling us about what God's like and what God is ultimately forming us into. He's casting a vision for how we live in light of the one who saved us and how we grow and repent when we fail. Because we will regularly fail one another in love. Sins of lovelessness abound. But if we look at the ideal that Paul lays out for us, we have something to strain for. And when we fail, we know that Jesus fills in the gaps. See, that's the, that's the point. Is our hope in this life and the next is not our own love, but the power of God's love for us in the person of Christ Jesus. So I want to ask three questions for you. And, and I'd love for us to respond to these tonight. To like pray and give our hearts and our energy over to Jesus tonight before we leave here. And I'm going to name these for you and I'm going to use these and we'll move to communion from here. Three questions for you. And it's not like you're going to solve them tonight. But I'd love for us like to ask the Spirit of God to minister to us in these places tonight. And then maybe this is a, a, a jumping off point in your community group in the days to come. Question number one. Where do you need to encounter the love of God? Where do you need to encounter the love of God? Because again, Paul isn't giving us just blanket definitions so you can pass the test. He's talking about a person he knew. Paul says, this one who is love, I know him. Where do you need to encounter the love of God? 
I don't know how much or how many of you know about this revival that broke out in Wilmore, Kentucky at this small college, I guess, earlier last year. But the revival was precipitated simply by a campus minister asking, hey, is there anyone here that would like to encounter the love of God? And long story short is there were people that had the courage and the faith to raise their hands and say, I want that. And then they met for like the next 30 days straight. Like where do you want to encounter or need to encounter the love of God? Question number two, where do you need to be freed from the destructive consequences of lovelessness? And lovelessness has consequences. They are tragic, painful, and hideous. Where do you bear in your body or in your story the destructive consequences of lovelessness? For some of you, it's your own lovelessness. And for some of you, it's the lovelessness of others. Where do you need to be freed from that? Could we pray with you tonight and ask God to free you? Maybe you need to ask someone's forgiveness. Maybe you need to grant someone forgiveness. Maybe you've held on to bitterness for so long that it sprouted plants in your heart that the Spirit of God needs to uproot. Where do you tonight need to be freed from the destructive consequences of lovelessness? And then lastly, where's one place today that you want to grow, you want God to grow you and grow love in you? If you think about this list that Paul gives of what love is and what love does, Where's one place you could say, God, would you grow love in me here? God, would you grow patience in me? God, would you grow kindness in me? God, would you diminish envy, boasting, irritability in me? God, would you grow in me the ability to bear all things? Would you grow in me the ability to believe all things? Would you grow in me the the ability to hope all things? you grow in me the ability to endure all things? Where's one place you need to grow? Just take a second before the Lord and answer that question. Fathers, my brothers and sisters, move to like, I, I pray answer a real question with you. We get to move to this meal that you gave us where the central theme we're celebrating And the broken bread and the cup is our hope in this life and the next hinges completely on the love of God for us in Jesus Christ, not our own love for God. So God, where where we're trying to fill in the gap with our own behavior, our own performance, our own righteousness, would you free us from living a lie tonight and help us to live according to the great realities offered to us in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And I ask, living God, that you would let this time be a time of communion and a time of receiving gifts from your spirit together. That we would realize like we're not in a hurry, we've got no place to run to. And uh, you love to give good gifts to your people. So come and minister to us now, I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.